Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Discipleship Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word with this lesson. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's lesson. Footsteps of Messiah, and we're going to go to page 91. We finished the, uh, the church episode. We've seen the... the the uh, prophetic scenario of how the church ends, the church ends in apostasy, and then we'll talk a little bit later on about the rapture of the church and the judgment seat of Christ and all that, but what we want to get into now is a sequence of pre-tribulational events on page 91 of Footsteps of the Messiah, and Dr. Fruchtenbaum will say there will be uh, somewhat, uh, maybe nine events, pre-tribulational events. Uh, somewhere probably I'll add one more. He doesn't include Psalm 83 and he doesn't include, uh, Jeremiah 49, which is the destruction of Elam. Uh, so maybe I would say 11 events. I'll add those in as we go. But what we need to understand is the rapture is imminent. It's an event that can happen that doesn't trigger the tribulation. But pre- these pre-tribulational events need to happen in order for the tribulation to go down. And so the tribulation needs to have these things occur before the seven years of the great day of the Lord. And what we're looking at a lot of times, in, when we talk, talk about the signs of the times, we're looking at the buildup of the pre-tribulational events and the tribulation itself. And some of these events have already occurred. And particularly, the first pre-tribulational event that we see is World War One and World War Two, and this is prophetically significant. Now, why? Well, we'll look at it in, in just a second. World War One, World War Two did two things to the Jews. World War One uh, kind of fostered the Zionist movement and kind of pushed it along, especially with the Balfour uh, Declaration by Britain that saying that Israel has the right to go back into their land. Britain failed to follow that through, and uh, eventually in 1948, World War II, and after the Holocaust happened, and the sympathy of the world surrounded the Jews, World War II helped the Jews get their nation state. So both World War I and World War II are prophetically significant because it's predicted in Scripture. Yes, it is predicted in Scripture, and I'll show you in just a second. Um, so... When we talk about Israel being back in the land, I will usually throw out the, the, the term, it's prophetically significant. And that's not just I'm, that I'm guessing on that, that I hope it's prophetically significant. It is prophetically significant because I can trace it right to the Bible. So what we're doing in studying pre-tribulational events, and I want you to get the order correct, we understand our scripture first and the prophecy first, then we turn to current events and see if those events fit perfectly. We do not do what the fanatics do in prophecy, which is, I look at current events first, and then I try to fit them into Scripture by putting a round peg in a square hole. And that is dangerous. And that's why you and I will get lumped in with the crazies, because that's the wrong order. You don't start with current events and try to make them fit into prophecy. It doesn't work like that. It's the opposite. Scripture first, and then I look. If it's not there, it's not there. 
Okay. Uh, and I'll show some of the problems in that later on when we talk more about how to view prophecy in light of current events. Okay, so what happened in World War I and World War II, and how is that prophetically significant? Again, Israel is the timepiece. And the idea of pre-tribulation event is what we call birth pains, the travail that Christ talked about that would happen in the Olivet Discourse. So right now, what we're seeing and have seen are the birth pains. So when someone tells you we're living in the last days, what does that mean? Where does that term come from? I want you to write down, I don't have it in your notes, it's not in your book, I want you to write down three categories, okay, when you read scripture. Remember, context, context, context. There are three ways last days will be referred to in the scriptures. The first way last days will be referred to, referred to Israel. The last days will refer to Israel. When you see, like the Old Testament prophets say, in the last days, Israel will do such and such, and this will happen to Israel such and such, that's the last days for Israel. That will, that will contextually limit you into, uh, the period right before the tribulation, during the tribulation, or in the kingdom age. Okay? So that's one category when you see in the last days. The second category is the last days for the church. That's another separate category. Category number two, the last days for the church. Paul will warn Timothy, perilous times will come in the last days. And he will talk specifically about how the church will end. And we just looked at that through apostasy. And we look at it with Laodicea, but that's the warnings about the church. Okay? So that's the second category. The third category is last days according to the age. The age. Last days of the age. So you got three categories. Last days of the church, Israel, and the last days of the age. Now here, this is important contextually when you interpret scripture. Depending on where you're at, you have to see, is the scripture saying the church, Israel, or days? And then that will tell you where you're prophetically at when you read this. So this is important. The age in rabbinic idea, and even with the disciples in Christ, it starts with the age that Christ was in, and the next age is what we call the messianic age. The only uh, thought in two ages, the rabbis. So when the rabbis came up with this idea, and they're correct, that the age they lived in, and this goes all the way back to the rabbis and Jesus, the age Jesus lived in, the next age would be called the Messianic age or the kingdom age. So they only thought in two ages. Okay? So it will say, they'll, they'll ask Jesus in this text, we're going to read, when will this age end? The age we're currently living in. And so when you see the question the disciples will ask Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, they'll ask him this one question. When will this age, the current age we live in, when will it end? What will be the sign for the end of the age? Because they know when this age ends, the kingdom starts. The messianic age. So there's two ages. Does that make sense so far? That's, that's an interpretive hermeneutical principle you have to understand when you're studying is Referring, what is the last days referring to? Those categories and the age that we're living in. Okay? If you got those down, everything starts making perfect sense. Okay. 
if you're talking about the dispensations, that's a, that's what we're calling the economies. Okay, so um, the economies, um, we're in the age of grace. That's the economy, the church age. Jesus lived and the disciples lived when there was an overlap or I should say an overlap, but when the two ages were transitioning. Mosaic age, law of Moses, and then the new covenant, which is the church age. And they lived during that period of time where that transition, the book of Acts is that transition through that. But when we're talking about age, I'm not talking about the dispensations. I'm talking about a continuity of time in which the disciples lived and Christ lived and it has continued. And from that point on, it will go until the new age starts. Even though they didn't term it dispensationalism or anything, they saw obviously there were different ages and that the next age to come after this, this current age was the kingdom. And that's true. That's exactly what we believe. That after the age of grace will come what's called the millennial kingdom or the age of grace. Do not confuse that though. It starts getting a little tricky here. Do not confuse that with what's called the, the mystery kingdom age. That's a little bit different. I, I'm going to confuse it like a termite in a real yo right now. <laughs> what happens is God administrates differently in different ages. Okay? In the church age, he's administering or his economy is the church. He's dealing with human beings through the church. Obviously, in the Mosaic period, he dealt with Israel through the Mosaic law, the 613 commands. Obviously, we don't do that anymore, so you can you know we're not in that age anymore. When Israel rejected Christ, he introduced another concept called the mystery kingdom. Because they were waiting for the, the true kingdom, the literal kingdom to happen, and it was going to be delayed because they had rejected him. So the kingdom was going to be delayed. So what was going to happen? They were trying to figure out, well, what's the age then we're going to live in? He termed it the mystery kingdom, Matthew 13. The mystery kingdom is a little bit different than the church age. The church age exists in the mystery kingdom age, but the mystery kingdom um, goes through the tribulation. Whereas the church age stops at the rapture, the mystery kingdom continues through the great tribulation all the way to the second coming. So, the mystery kingdom then is literally between the rejection of Israel, or Israel's rejection of Messiah, to the second coming. So there's like a a, a, a layer of, of how that mystery kingdom works, and you can read Matthew 13, that goes beyond the church age, because the church age stops with the rapture, and that age goes on. I know that's a little bit more than you wanted to know, but... Um, one of the things about the mystery, the, the things about the mystery kingdom is it, there are different aspects in that that not only apply to the church, but also apply to Israel during the tribulation. That's all you need to know about that. And let's define our terms. They're believers, but they're not part of the body of Christ. You're correct. They're part of, they're believers. Some will be part of Israel and some will be believing Gentiles, we call them. We call them tribulation saints. Because you can't be part of the church if the church is removed. So that's why the mystery kingdom has to continue on, and it does continue on to the second coming. Because the function of salvation will still be the same. The Holy Spirit will have to regenerate them, they have to believe in faith, but they'll be part of different entities. They will not be part of the church. 
a believing Jew in the tribulation will be considered the true remnant of Israel. And a believing Gentile would be considered a part of the multitudes that come to faith in Messiah during tribulation. But they're not part of the church. So the, the, the term that gets put on them is tribulation saints. They're part of the mystery kingdom. They come out of the mystery kingdom. They will actually go into their literal kingdom. And, but they're not part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ is, you have to keep them, us distinct from them. Clear as mud. I know I'm slicing things a little fine, but obviously, it, I mean, really, you, the practicality is someone that gets saved in tribulation is not part of the church. You obviously understand that because the church has been removed. So they get saved, and if they get saved, they'll be preserved all the way to the end. Some will be martyred, but a, a believing Jew will be preserved all the way to the end, and then will will gain entrance into the kingdom because of belief and be part of the messianic kingdom and live for a thousand years in that kingdom have babies, and, and but you and I will be here, but the church has been, what, glorified. They have not. We'll become immortal while they are not. And that's why you, that's why you have to keep your mystery kingdom people and your church people separate, because you just start ending up lumping everybody together and it doesn't work like that. Clear as mud, right? I know you've probably been told by people, and it's wrong, and with all due respect, it's wrong, that if people hear the truth now and the rapture happens, they won't get a second chance. That's not true. If you study Second Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul lays, a, lays out a chronology in, in, in that chapter, and it pin, he pinpoints when the powerful delusion, Kenny, you're talking about, will be sent out. And he pinpoints it after the Antichrist declares himself to be God. So where are we at when he does that? That's the, the, the midpoint, right? So the first three and a half years, if someone misses the rapture, they still will have a second chance. They'll have third, fourth, fifth, 20th, 50th chance hearing the witnesses and hearing the 144,000. But then at the midpoint of the tribulation, according to the Apostle Paul, you will have to make a decision. You either accept Antichrist or Christ himself. And if they accept Antichrist, obviously they put the mark of the beast. Once they decide for Antichrist, that's when the powerful delusion is sent to them. That they will believe the lie, Paul says. And what's the lie? That Antichrist is God. And that their fate is sealed. Now, the teenagers asked me, well, what if someone gets put the mark on them by accident? Well... <laughs> You can see why they would ask that. And um, what if someone was in a coma and they just stuck it on him? <laughs> well, good question. I said, well, the issue is it's a conscious decision. That's the issue. It's a conscious decision. And by the way, before people start putting on the mark, angels are let loose on the uh, throughout the world, flying and warning people not to receive the mark of the beast. God is sending that one final message of grace through through angelic communicators so that everybody knows I'm giving you a, one more chance. Because if you do this, you've reached the point of no return. And so it's at the three and a half year mark. So people, I know people have said that, but they, they just simply haven't read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 very in depth to see that Paul's laying out, laying out a chronology and it doesn't happen until the three, three and a half year mark. That doesn't give anyone the excuse like, well, I'll just get saved after the rapture. No, because you'll be beheaded. 
You want to die and lose your head? What are you, an idiot? Um, you know, it's just people say, well, I'll just put it off. No, you won't. You're going to see the worst time in history. I think RFID chips probably are where we're going with this. Because it's attached to a cat, a cashless system, I believe. And it's attached to the ability to buy and sell or do any type of transactions. Well, tattoo can't do that. You would have to have your entire banking system on that tattoo, and you can't do that. The only way you can have your entire banking stuff is an RFID chip. And your medical, your identity. See, this whole thing is building up to this. So, well, people are hacking in and stealing my identities and this and that. and That's got to stop. And I guarantee you people... I used to think 20 years ago when I studied this whole thing that people would, oh man, it's going to be forced on people and they're going to have to, they'll be begging for it now. They'll beg for it. And a lot of people are opting to do it now. They want to have it. Alzheimer patients and stuff like that because they're losing them. They want to do it in kids. They want to do it in our military. And um, instead of having the military wear dog tags, they want them to have be chipped. And so that's a growing concern of anyone who's in the military. They want to chip them uh, with an RFID chip. And the problem now with the RFID chips is it causes cancer, we're finding out. It causes tumors and, and cancers coming from it. Very interesting, if one of, the, one of the plagues that God sends out, after people have taken the mark, one of the plagues is loathsome sore. A loathsome sore occurs on their body. And it's very fun, very interesting that that's what they're finding out in lab rats is that it causes tumors and loathsome sores in the lab rats. Interesting, huh? The, the scripture uses the word loathsome sores. So it's disgusting to look at, I guess. I don't know what it does. It's like a open wound or something like that. All right. Okay. So turn to page 92. And let's read a little bit, a little portion of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, right there in the middle of your page, on page 92. And, and here's, here's how this breaks out, okay? And Jesus went out from the temple and was going on his way. Now, context is he has just pronounced doom on the temple. Okay? He's just told them, and he's pronounced the seven woes on the religious leaders of Israel. So obviously you can see why the disciples are going to ask him these questions. And his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. But he answered and said unto them, See not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And that came true in 70 AD. He will answer that later on. But that's not our concern. We're going to look at that in Luke 21 and just uh, uh, down the road in a little bit. And he, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately. So this is a private discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's not a public pronouncement. This is private to his believers. Saying, okay, notice the three questions. Tell us, number one, when shall these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. Okay, that's the first question. When will the destruction of the temple be? What's the sign for it is the idea, okay? And what shall be the sign of your coming? Question number two. They know he's coming back. What's the sign for your coming? And three, and of the end of the world, 
It's a King James translation. What it should be is age. It's the Greek word aeon, which means age. When is the end of the age? What is the sign for the end of the age? So those are the three questions, and he explains the Olivet Discourse to them. The Olivet Discourse is spread out through Matthew 24 and 25, Mark 13, Luke 21. You have to blend all three together to get the complete discourse. But what the discourse does is show you a synopsis of the Great Tribulation, the seven years of the Tribulation, and even the occurrences afterwards. So that's what it is. It's, it's kind of a mini book of Revelation, what happens. But it does include an event of the destruction of the temple in Luke 21. It reaches back there. It talks about the experiences of the disciples. And it will describe the end of this age. So it's a little bit more than, obviously, just the tribulation. It extends past a few things. Okay. So here's what he's going to do. He's going The first answer, then, he's going to answer about this end of the age thing. Okay. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man lead you astray. Okay, so he's telling you, I'm warning you. These are going to be non-signs. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, or the Messiah, and shall lead many astray. And you shall hear wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for these things must needs uh, come to pass. But the end is not yet. The issue, though, what he's pointing out is two issues. During this age that you and I live in, he's saying false messiahs are going to come and pretend that I'm he. He goes, that's not a sign for the end of age when you start seeing that. And that that happened in history. A lot of people claim to be Christ or a lot of cults claim that they had the true religion of Christ and they were the true followers of him and that they had the real Jesus. So we have seen that. That's true. In the last 2,000 years, that is exactly what has happened. He says that's that's not a sign. Second thing it's not a sign is you will hear wars and rumors of wars. The idea about that is do not be alarmed when you see regional or local skirmishes in different parts of the world. That is not a sign. So when a nation goes to war against another nation, that's not a sign. So this, those are non-signs. He's saying this is how this age will continue to go. Okay, so you're following so far. Now he's going to introduce what the sign is. You see the word for? In the Greek, it's introducing a new subject. He's switching gears now. Or it's like saying, but, or watch this. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and earthquakes in diverse places. But all of these things are the beginning of travail, or better yet, birth pains like a pregnant woman. There it is. That's your sign for the end of the age. Now, the work that you and I have to do is we have to figure out what does that term mean, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and whatever that term is, it's connected to famines and earthquakes, and what's connected to it is the concept of birth pains surrounding it. I'm sorry, yeah, the third question, I'm sorry. I, I, I meant to say he's going to address that end-of-the-age question first, what I meant. Sorry. Okay, so there is the timing mechanism to understand where you and I are at. 
Okay, so if we're living in the 1500s, if we're living in uh, the 1300s or 500 AD, there is your timing mechanism right there, and whether you're living in 2015, okay? What does that term mean? Okay, well, let's turn the next page, uh, or two pages over. Page 94. That term comes from the rabbis. It's a rabbinic term, it's a rabbinic idiom, that the rabbis used to teach. They got the concept from Isaiah 19, which we're going to read, and they got the concept from 2 Chronicles chapter 15. So let's read Isaiah 19 first. And this is, Isaiah 19 is a prophecy about is, uh, sorry, uh, Egypt in the future. That, uh, Egypt's going to have a civil war in the future, by the way. The burden of Egypt. Behold, Yahweh rides upon a swift cloud and comes unto Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall tremble at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of him. And I will stir up the Egyptians against the Egyptians. So civil war will happen in the future, by the way. And they shall fight every one against his brother and every one against his neighbor, city against city and kingdom against kingdom. See the term? Okay. Let's stop right there. That's where they picked up the term, which meant... The totality of the Egyptians will be in war in the future. That's what, that's what Isaiah is prophesying, that there's going to be a massive civil war, and the totality of everybody in Egypt will be at war. So the idea is totality, totality. Okay, so now jump down to Second Chronicles. In this passage, it is talking about a Middle East war, and the whole Middle East is in view, the totality of the Middle East is in view in Second Chronicles. And the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and said unto him, Hear ye me, Asa, and all of Judah and Benjamin. Yahweh is with you, while ye are with him. If ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season Israel was out the true God, and without a teaching priest, without law, uh, but when in their distress they turned unto Yahweh, the God of Israel, and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times there was no place to him that uh, that went out, nor to him that came in. But great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the land, and they were broken in pieces, and here's the term, nations, uh, nation against nation and city against city. For God did vex them with all adversary, uh, adversity, but uh, be strong and let not your hands be slack, for your work shall be rewarded. Okay. It is the idea of a totality of Middle East war. Okay. So here's what happened. The rabbis took these terms, and in the case of Egypt and the case of the Middle East, and they got the concept from it means totality. Nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom means totality. So then the rabbis started coming up with the idea that, well, when Messiah comes, what we see from the Old Testament prophecies is that the whole world, the whole world will be in a war, a totality. And so they use the term nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom as saying that is the sign for the coming of the Messiah. Okay, so a couple rabbis I'll point out here. And 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 uh, in your text on page ninety five, you can see that uh, Bereshit Rabbah states this: 
If you shall see kingdoms rising against each other in turn, then give heed and note the footsteps of the Messiah. So the rabbis were predicting this, okay? This is the term uh, the term used for your book, but it's the Messiah, by the way. Uh, Zohar Kadash states, At that time, war shall be stirred up in the world. Nation shall uh, be against nation and city against city. Much distress shall be renewed against the enemies of the Israelites. Okay, so that's non-scriptural, but that's rabbinic commentary on when the Messiah comes. Obviously, you don't... They're not using the Bible, okay? They're, they're using their concepts. They, they discounted the first coming, obviously. They only saw Christ coming, or the Messiah coming in glory and going to war, which is true of the second coming. So that's why they missed it the first coming. They were expecting a warrior king, and that's not the intention of the first coming. So, so the Messiah started putting that down and on paper and telling when the Messiah comes, it's gonna, the whole world will be in chaos and at war. Okay, so that term was in use in Jesus' day. So he uses the language of the rabbis to use it as a sign of when the end of the age will happen. And so he, that's, a, that's where the, the, the definition of that word comes from. And so, so many people miss this because they don't know Hebraism. They don't know how the, the Jews spoke. They don't know how the, the language was used that day. And they interpreted that so many bad ways, they missed the point of the passage. So, you being a good Bible student, I've just told you what the term means and what the term was being used in Jesus' day. He uses it and he says, when you see world wars, then the sign has been given for the end of the age. And what that means is it's not going to end there, but the birth pains now have started. The end, the last days have started then for whatever, however long that age will end, go, the, the sign has been given that we are in the last days. So this is why I always tell you when I'm preaching or teaching, we are in the last days according to Matthew 24. When did we see in all of human history the first time of World War? World War I. World War II was a continuation. And by the way, note that I stated, World War I and World War II were both connected to the Jews. World War I pushed Zionism. World War II got them back into their land. Isn't that interesting? That the sign for the end of the age helped them. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. That's providence. So with that being stated, the question you got asked, were there, were there famines? Were there earthquakes? Yes. Note on bottom of page 95. The worldwide, you see that last paragraph? The worldwide conflict that signaled the beginning of the last days was to be coupled with famines and earthquakes. As far as the famines are concerned, during the war, uh, war years of 1918-1919, a pestilence killed 23 million people. 1920, the Great Chinese Famine occurred, followed by the Great Russian Famine in 1921. So, did we have this, the, the, the world wars coupled with famines? Yes. Now coupled with earthquakes, Look at the data. The earthquake factor is even more interesting, Fruchtenbaum points out. According to the Encyclopedia Americana, between the years 63 to 1896, there were only 26 recorded earthquakes. Okay, Most of the earth, uh, world's earthquakes began to occur since 1900. Isn't that interesting? 
Most of the world's earth, uh, in conjunction with World War I, there were several significant earthquakes. Obviously, 1905, 1906, all this. Subsequent and devastating earthquakes include all the way from 1927, and you just follow all that to 1999 in Turkey where 15,000 are killed. The point about this is there has been tremendous increase in earthquake activity in conjunction with World War I. The ones listed here are only the major ones with a death rate of more than 10,000 or more. There was more, there was more of them, but they were smaller. Added to this are the greater number of smaller death rates. One article gave the following figure. Look at this. The first thousand years after Jesus, there was approximately five recorded major earthquakes, although we are, are sure more occurred in remote locations. However, the trend has been on the increase. Look at this. 14th century, 157 major earthquakes. 15th, 174. The 16th century, 253. 17th century, 278. 18th century, 640. 19th century, 2,119. Nearly 900,000 earthquakes have been recorded thus far in the 20th century. Notice the jump to now there is an earthquake on this planet every hour somewhere. Birth pains, birth pains, famines, earthquakes, world wars. Has the sign been given? I think so. I believe so. If I'm going to take scripture for what it says... I have to believe the sign has been given, and truly, we are in the last days. How long those last days go, I do not know. That's why you don't, you still can't do the day or the hour. It's not a timing mechanism where you can figure out the rapture or anything like that. It just tells you, you're closer than any Christian has ever been. If you were in the 1500s, you would still have to be waiting for that sign. And that sign had not been given. Now, the rapture could have happened, but still, as far as the tribulational events... The birth pains have not been given. Ladies, what does birth pains do? Goes on forever? It increases. Frequency increases. And the pain, the severity of the pain increases. So, you're, so contractions start out and there's breaks in between them. But the closer you get to the, the birth, they start happening closer and closer together and the intensity starts rising. So we should expect a general trend of birth pain, not very big, then birth pain, 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 bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all that is that is leading up to the tribulation. So it shouldn't surprise you that when you see the world as it is, it's it, the evil and the things that are happening are growing exponentially. They're multiplied. So when something happens, something bigger happens, and it's more, it comes right on the heels of the uh, next one. It's not spread out. And so if you were living in the 30s and 20s, a lot of things were spread out. But the last 15 years, ask yourself, how many things have you seen in rapid succession and with greater intensity? That's unbelievable. So what it tells you is you are very, very close. And it's biblically correct to say you're living in the last days. You have authority from Scripture to say that. Because people will say, this is what they'll do to you. They'll point out, well, Paul said to Timothy about the church that in the last days the church would be like this and this and this. And there's no timing mechanism when he says last days of the church. And he, and that, when that person says that, you are correct. You're correct. 
But then they'll say, well, then it says Israel in the last days will do this and this and this and this. And there's no timing mechanism there. And you'll say, that's correct too. But I do have a timing mechanism for the end of the age. And because of the world wars, there's your timing mechanism. That's where I can attach things. So then, then that's when I can go to Paul and say, okay, Paul, you're saying this is how the church is going to end. Then I have to bridge that to the end of the age and I'm in the last days. So I take that concept and then I can squarely say, yes, we're in the last days of the church as well because in the last days of the age. Because otherwise, if you didn't have that timing mechanism, you could say, well, Paul says the last days. Well, I don't know if I'm in the last days of the church. It could get worse than this. And 50 years from now, it could be worse than this. But that, that timing mechanism is telling you, no, 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 no. It has started. So you should expect the church to be like it is and, and finally end in apostasy. So I hope that helps. And that, that when, when you hear me preaching it, I sometimes throw it out there real fast. And sometimes I'm, I, I can't unpack that in a sermon, but at least here, you guys get that and know, you'll be tracking with me when I state those things. A lot of people say, what did he just say? And I can't unpack that. It, look how long it took to unpack that. Okay, any questions so far? Was that clear as mud? We all good. I know, that's a little, that's a little hard, but um, you, you sometimes got to go pick the high fruit to get some of that. And uh, then once you get it, man, you're like, oh, yeah, I get it now. That's good stuff. So Matthew 24 is very interesting. Thanks for joining us for another episode of The Anchor Discipleship. We hope that this message is a blessing to you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. Rock Harbor Church has two other podcasts. The first is called The Anchor Sunday Sermons, and it's filled with pastors' Sunday messages. And the second is the Anchor Bible Study. It's filled with past and continuing Bible studies preached during our Wednesday evening services. If you enjoyed this message and would like to hear them, please check the description of this episode or search your favorite podcast streaming services. Rock Harbor Church also has a print-to-order merchandise store. You can shop for Rock Harbor merch at rockharborchurch.store. Support for all three of our podcasts comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Keep looking up for our redemption draws near. God bless.